by your spirit, stir our hearts. Thank you that you are faithful as a shepherd and skillful as a potter. You do know what you're doing, and you're teaching us to trust you. Uh, please bless right now in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, <clears throat> uh, update on my family. Had a fantastic vacation in Florida, and it was the, one of the smallest groups we've ever had down there, or at least in years and years and years. We've had up to 25 to 30, so had a bunch of folks. Uh, fantastic time with Catherine and Lisa. Uh, I, Catherine and I have this little ritual where we debrief at night, you know, the day and what's going on and how she sees God at work in her life and just stuff. And uh, I said, Catherine, what do you miss about home? What do you miss? And she said just almost instantly. It's not like, oh, okay, let me say something right here to impress Dad. She just said reflexively, I miss my church. I miss my church. And that came out in about two seconds. And so uh, you guys have a huge impact on Catherine. A really, really big impact. And so she is happy and where she wants to be right now. She's at church. So had a great time. Uh, Michelle asked me, how did I see uh, did I have any epiphanies on the beach? And uh, I got to tell you, you know, I did. At night, we would go down to the beach, and you could see the Milky Way galaxy. There, it was so low light on the beach. Truly amazing to see this giant band uh, of, of stars, this galaxy, billions of stars, and to see it uh, with with bare eyes is truly amazing. So, had a blast. Had a blast. So. Thank you for being supportive of that. So, um, okay, what I want you to do is turn to. <clears throat> we can start. Then. We, have the we can start. <laughs> Dr. Lee is here. He brought our special candles. Um, let's lay down uh, a historical kind of basis for what I what I want to teach this morning. In the Greco-Roman world, in the Jewish world, as well as the Greco-Roman world, uh, there were certain social values that were driving forces. They, they were uh, organizing principles that people would, would, would make sense out of life with. Uh, for example, a male is superior to a female. That's something that you really didn't question. Uh, it was normative. Uh, women, women knew their place, men knew their place, and it brought order. Now, we as Westerners find it highly offensive to believe that a woman is inferior, but in their world, it was not offensive. She was essential. She had her role. Uh, she fulfilled her role. It brought her honor. There were males. They had their roles. They believed their roles were superior, and assuming they were honorable, it, it brought them you know, uh, their place. They found their place in the world. So maleness and femaleness, that was an organizing value that, that literally caused society to run smoothly. Another value is going to be honor and shame. Honor and shame. It's good to understand uh, a bit about shame. I haven't mentioned much about this. There really is a kind of third dynamic in the honor-shame world. You have honor, and then you have shame, and then you have dishonor. And let me explain how that works. Shame, if you were a shameful person, that's actually a good thing. Okay? It is only when a person became so dishonored 
that they lost their ability to blush. They lost their ability to feel guilt. They lost their ability to feel shame. Because in an honor-dishonor culture, to lack shame, the capacity to feel shame, meant that you were now morally and ethically and socially bankrupt. You were, you were, you were gone. You were in the extreme position of, of dishonor. And that would be a horrible place to be. In fact, the language, the original language, indicates that um, when people lose their ability to be shame-faced, shame-facedness, they can't have that face that indicates grief, repentance, sorrow, regret, embarrassment, guilt. When you lose the capacity to have those feelings, then you are not in the process of repenting. It's those very facial expressions in the Hebrew language and in the Greco-Roman world, the greater Greco-Roman world, that we understand an honorable person has the ability to feel guilt. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? So shame is a transitional phase where if you have honor, it pulls you back into the honor zone. Honor, shame, dishonor. If you get to the dishonorable place, you no longer feel shame, embarrassment, guilt about your behaviors. That's bad. That is a morally bankrupt kind of person. A third driving value that I think is really, really important right now is called patron-client relationships. Pa patron-client relationships. This is the third part in a series on being a follower of Christ and how that affects relationships. So I wanted to address patron-client relationships. The male, uh, Marlon, would be perceived as being superior patron-like to the client, the female in the home, husband-wife. She is dependent upon him for financial provision, security, place to live. Uh, he is obligated to make sure that he brings the blessings of the God, uh, gods on the home, in a, in a Greek home or Roman home. So you get this patron, provider, leader, supervisor, protector, and then you get the client the receiver of those benefits, who is now obligated to bring honor, praise, and support the patron. Okay? It's, in our culture, it would be a bit like a, an employee-employer relationship. Okay? What happens in a small business if the employees um, dishonor the boss? What happens? You've all been in the workforce long enough? They're no longer employees. Something, something goes wrong, right? And what is the demotivational poster, Lee? Uh, sometimes the best thing to do is fire all the unhappy people, right? <laughs> that helps your business. Just fire the unhappy people, okay? Well, that's the idea, that, that if you're the underling and you're receiving patron, patronage from your superior, whether it's money, a place to live, marriage, whatever it is, uh, a, a civic official is providing money to pave a street, to bring benefit to the village or the town or the city, then there is obligation to run honor back up to him, back up to the patron. It's called, big word, you ready? Reciprocity. I'm gonna do something for you. You are morally, ethically, in an honor, shame, dishonor dynamic, you are obligated to extend honor back to me. Okay, patron-client client relationships drove Greco-Roman culture. 
All right. It was so such a driving value. Uh, Lee, a uh, a high status male, may intentionally engage in the contract of becoming a slave to an even superior male to himself. He becomes the client. The superior male is the patron. And as a result of year of service and extension of honor to the, to the patron, he gets promoted in the end. He might get the governorship of the city or the mayorship, think of it that way, in exchange, okay? So patronage is a big driving value in the Greco-Roman world, okay? Where your superior sets an example for you, when your superior provides provision that you otherwise could not afford, paving a street, building a shrine, uh, assisting in the financing of, of a uh, aqueduct, getting water run to the village, to the city, all right? And that would be named in honor of the patron. Do we do that today? Do big donors get their names on buildings? You bet. You bet they do. That is absolutely a derivative right out of the Greco-Roman world. Papa Warbucks and his wife drop $20 million on the church, and the church puts on the side of the building Papa Warbucks Family Life Center, Papa Warbucks Worship Center, Papa Warbucks Fellowship Hall. Okay? Churches do it all the time. Okay? The extension of uh, colleges do it. You know, the, uh, oh, there were some people that were wonderful benefactors to Williams Baptist College, Washita, and other schools around the Mid-South. They were very, very wealthy. But in exchange, their name was on the building. You know, so you see it all the time. That's patron-client relationships. I think we've got it. All right. Turn to John 13. John 13. Click to it. Turn to it. <laughs> If you could drop that layer, that interpretive <coughs> historical layer of patronage over the ministry of Jesus Christ. Some interesting, thing, interesting, interesting things, get my words right, interesting things come out. For example, John 13, starting in verse 12. So, when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I've done for you? Done to you. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. Patronage. There it is, patronage. Teacher, Lord. And he doesn't de deny it. Oh, no, 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 don't call me that. He accepts it, because it's the truth. For so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Patronage, patron-client relationship, reciprocity, honor, shame, dishonor, and the social dynamics of the, of the Greco-Roman world. The Jewish world, identical in so many of these, these values. All right. 
In keeping with that, I want to introduce an idea. If I lined up 10 coffee cups on my table, there's, a, there's an imaginary table here, and there's 10 mugs on it. And my goal uh, is I am obligated as a Christian to fill all 10 mugs up. And if I keep those mugs filled, I'm a good Christian. Mug one is, is the, the mug of prayer. And I just got to pray, you know, and that means time on the knees, prayer closet, you want to call it your war room. It means I maintain a prayer journal. It, maintain, it means I maintain a prayer answer log so that I can actually do what David did publish with my mouth, the, the glories of God. I prayed for John Doe on October 1st, 2014. By November 3rd, this happened in direct answer to prayer, and I log out the answer. So lug, mug one, I've got I've to do the prayer thing, and I've got to fill it up. Mug two is quiet time, which means I've got to read Scripture, I've got to memorize it, I've got to meditate and journal on Scripture. I've got to fill up that mug. I've got to keep it going. And the next mug is going to be worship, and I've got to fill that one up, you know. And that means uh, I put aside my embarrassment, and I want to raise my hands in worship, I'm going to do it. And if I need to cry, if I need to yell, if I need to clap my hands, I am going to worship with reckless abandon. Got to fill that, I got to keep that mug full, you know. And I got to go right down the line. You can think of all the mugs that you feel guilty about or feel very proud about, about the mugs that you fill. All these particular aspects of the Christian life, okay. There is a mug <laughs> often overlooked in my estimation, and that is the mug of mercy. The mug of mercy. Let me explain. Turn, <clears throat> let's go with Romans. Turn to Romans 15. And the mug of mercy. Romans 15. And look what Paul teaches here. Okay. Verse 7, Romans 15, 7. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Okay. The word accept is proslambano, proslambano. And it literally means to take close to oneself. It means to take someone by the hand who's walking away from you, grab them by the hand and pull them close and say, let's talk. Let's have a heart-to-heart -heart conversation. It means to accept, to take hold of, to take to oneself. Okay. So, therefore, take by the hand and draw close to your own heart each other. Why? Because Jesus Christ took you by the hand and drew you close to his heart. That's why. And he did it to the glory of God. Okay? All right, hold your, hold your place there. Turn over to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. Look what Paul says about relationships, Ephesians 4, verse 25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, 
for we are members of one another. There you go. You see the idea of relationship here. Be angry and do not, uh, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. <coughs> do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who is in need. By the way, Lee, this most likely is a historical reference to a man suffering from extreme poverty. And he's stealing food. 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it may give grace to those who hear. And look at, watch the litany of words Paul uses, and notice how they have everything to do with relationships. So do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. By the way, that is called a syndetonic sentence. Syndeton. The excessive use of the conjunction and. <laughs> Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander. Now, if you're a professional writer, uh, what are you saying? What, is that, what does that imply? It's a device. It's a literary tool. What does it imply? It's all coming together right now. This is your moment. <laughs> what, what, is, what is he doing? As a writer, what would you try to accomplish by doing that? Absolutely. Absolutely. In other words, in our modern vernacular, Paul is pounding the pulpit. All right? So let all bitterness bang and wrath bang and anger bang. I mean, he is hammering the pulpit to make the point. He's punching out some ideas that are relational destroyers. Right? Verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. Why? Because of reciprocity. Because of patron-client relationships. That we as people of faith, those who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, have an obligation to extend honor back up to the person who greatly benefited our lives. The one that extended benevolence the one that paved the street for us, the one that put in the shrine for us, the one that put in the aqueduct for, for our poor little town. And we are obligated to put his name on the aqueduct and drink that water in his honor. Makes sense. You drop it in historical context. So he's saying that the very thing Christ has done for you is the very thing, if it's real, if you are a true follower of Jesus Christ and his influence has been real in your life, you're going to turn it right back around and extend it to people who hurt you. In fact, you're going to extend it to the people who treated you with bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and malice. <laughs> the people that really hurt you. Okay? Make sense? Turn to Colossians 3. Just a couple pages over. Look at Colossians 3. Very similar. Look what Paul does here. With this language. Heavy, heavy emphasis on relationships. <clears throat> Verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God. Ooh. Patronage. The superior selected the poor inferior. <clears throat> who couldn't help himself. Couldn't help herself. As those who have been chosen of God. Holy and beloved. Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. The very qualities of reciprocity that you literally reflect back on the person who redeemed you. 
Why? Because Christ is all and in all. In other words, in church, we ought to be the people who get along the best. Because Christ is in each one of us. And how could we not honor the Christ that exists in each one of us? Bear with one another. <clears throat> Forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, what's the next clause? What's going on there? Reciprocity. A, a soul reflex that as the Lord has forgiven me, I should forgive as well. Make sense? Patron-client relationships, honor, shame, dishonor, and that one annoying mug that we're all supposed to keep filled, and that's the mug of mercy. Our ability to extend merciful love, merciful forgiveness, merciful grace to people who hurt us. And it's in that very action that we, we really do demonstrate that we are in fact followers of Jesus Christ. In fact, uh, Lee, in a culture of persecution, that in all likelihood is the quintessential mark of a Christian. Not the prayer life, not the, the Bible study life, not the going out and doing the mission trip life, da 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 da, because there's a lot of mugs we got to do, right? But it's the ability to, to love your enemies. It may become quintessentially in a culture of persecution the defining quality of a follower of Jesus Christ. Serious. Serious business. Turn, turn back to Matthew 6 <clears throat> to show you just how, how deep this thing goes. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Pray then in this way, Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this daily bread. And look at verse 12. Do you see reciprocity in verse 12? You see it, Chelsea? Something's going on. There's a dynamic of the reception of mercy and the extension of mercy. The balance of the giving and receiving of mercy and forgiveness. Forgive us our debts. Like saying, God, I'm asking you to forgive me of my debts. Why? Because I'm faithful to forgive my peers. Don't lead us into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Uh, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, just in case we didn't get it, <laughs> look at verse 14 and 15. This is an extension of the Lord's Prayer. It's an interpretive comment that Christ gives after the amen. Just in case we don't get what was just said. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others then your Father will not forgive you your transgressions. We don't like that one. <laughs> that's the mug of mercy, and it's kind of hard to swallow that stuff. You know, that's a little difficult. And plus, we don't like the theology of it either. I don't like that theology. Can't I go running and confess my sins, and he forgives me because he's righteous? Huh? I don't like that one. Sounds like there's some qualifiers attached to it, some conditions and terms and conditions that I don't like. 
I want it. I want the easy button. I want First John 1, 9. Confess my sins, forgiven, done. One and done. Clean. Move on. I'm going to go back to my quiet time mug. I'm going to do that. I'm going to go to the worship mug and write a song for Jesus. I could sing of your love forever. Man, I love that song. And just stay right over there. We're going to do the worship mug. That's my favorite mug, by the way. Mm. Just in case we don't get it, we still don't get it. Turn to Matthew 18. Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me? It's verse 21, 18, 21. And I forgive him. I have to fill my mug of mercy up, drink of it myself, and give it to others. Up to seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Let me do a little translation. When he had begun to settle them, one owed him 15 years worth of salary, 15 years worth of salary. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children. And by the way, that actually did happen in Greco-Roman culture and Jewish culture. That is straight on out of the history books right there. Um, and all that he had in repayment be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of the slave felt compassion. He drank from the cup of mercy and released him and forgave the debt. That's a patron benefiting, blessing, and forgiving a client. Debt forgiveness, debt cancellation. But that slave went out and found one of his slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, roughly 200 days worth of labor. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. Isn't it interesting that the king that was calling in his, 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 the people that owed him money did not choke the guy that owed him 15 years worth of salary? Didn't choke him. The guy that just was forgiven radical debt chokes his friend. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. Almost verbatim, same thing. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what he was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that happened. In an honor, shame, dishonor society, there's always reporting. Always. It's what keeps the news going. All right? Always. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers 
until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each one of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. Now when you look at verse 35, we, are, we have several interpretive options. Jesus is completely wrong, and we know better than him. Option one, <laughs> he's just wrong. Option two, the poor guy's confused. And he really didn't mean to say it that way. And if he could go back and do the redo button, he would have worded it very, very differently. Option three, he's crazy. <laughs> he's just insane. Those are the words of an insane, crazy man. A guy that needs therapy because evidently he thinks uh, there's some invisible guy in the sky that's going to somehow deal out consequences. George Collin calls that mental illness, along with Sam Harris. That's mental illness. Dawkins and several others would say that's mental illness, including Bill Nye, the science guy. Or he meant every word he said. He's not misinformed. He's not ignorant. He's not insane. And he literally meant it. That if we do not forgive each other from the heart, there's going to be some really serious consequences that are going to be very, very unpleasant. So we've got a lot of mugs on the table, a lot of zones, aspects to our Christian life that are so important. And you know what? You really can't neglect any of them. And it makes faith in being a follower of Jesus Christ a full-time job. Money, tithing, giving, sacrificing financially, time, serving the church. I mean, I could go on and on. There may be a thousand mugs that we've got to fill up. You know, I don't know. But I'm telling you, one of the deepest and clearest ways the New Testament demonstrates whether or not we are the tree that bears good fruit is our ability to receive mercy and then extend it and give it to people who hurt us in unspeakable ways. It's about forgiveness. Love does not keep a list of wrong suffers. You're the gifted body of Christ. If we fully understood the significance of these words and the importance of Extending the mercy and grace of God and loving our enemies, loving our brothers. Man, for, let's just not even think about loving the outsiders. What about loving the insiders? What about husbands and wives? This is forgiveness in marriage. What about parents and children and forgiveness in the home? Parents forgiving children, and children forgiving parents, and churches, church staff fights and ugly mess that take place between people in the congregation and the church staff or just people in church, just your average church member hating the average church member and being bitter. You're the gifted body of Christ. How would we then live? Hebrews, uh, 
section there around verse 11 where it talks about Christ humbling himself. And yes. Exactly. That's good. Yes. Yes. Very good. Well, it's mud one, two, and three. <laughs> the prayer, the time in God's word, the worship are coming from the heart as opposed to the forgiveness. Then the spirit is transforming you and you would hear him speaking conviction so that you Edie, uh, I don't know if you've seen it in your life, but is it not true that when we start having a problem with God and things break down on the God side of the equation, it shows up in the human side of the equation and vice versa. We can all knot it up and twist it up with people and you don't want to read scripture anymore. You don't want to pray anymore. It, it, it just one affects the other, Right. And so by developing deep intimacy with God, with Christ, he's calling you to follow that, that, the true north. Uh, this is the example that I've set for you. It means following Christ results in caring for people, seeking and saving that which is lost. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I can exactly. say, you know, I'm forgiven, but deep down inside, there was a big question mark. Sure, sure. And you have, you know, you have parent wounds. You have parents that failed to model mercy and forgiveness and grace, and so, so parents fail, and so therefore we, God gets punished for it. <laughs> it's it is the dynamic of life, absolutely. 
Absolutely so. So what do you think? I was thinking about your analogy of the cups. And if there's 10 cups, um, then the coffee from the, for those cups come from the pot. And the pot is what Christ bought. And so there should be enough in that pot to fill all 10 cups. Yeah. If I'm weak in mercy, then I'm going to have a cup that's not filled. So there's something wrong my attitude toward being a Christ follower. Yeah. So yeah. You take all of it and dump it back in, it fills the pot. And if it doesn't, then you can't take it and dump it back in. It means I have a relationship with him and I want to cultivate it. And a cultivated relationship with him flows out into others. Being merciful to people who have, have, I'm expecting them to be merciful back, or if they're not, I have to be merciful anyway. Because I learned that by spending time with him, because that's what he did. Yeah. Yeah. I need to be like him, be holy as I am with thee. My behavior, here's the model, you know, and you have within you the power to live that model if you just surrender to it. Yeah. Yeah. And you're part of it. Time with the king should help define how you're going to relate to your peers. Absolutely. Isaiah 12, 3, Therefore you will joyously draw water from the wells of salvation. Unending supply. I like that. Anybody else? If you go to the Beatitudes, you know, the next to last ones, the rest of those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Let's say righteousness just from the unrighteous or from those who claim to be righteous or theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We live in the kingdom now. And so, like Chris Perry, he's so self-righteous. You know, well, that's, in a sense, that's being persecuted for, for being righteous. Yeah, and it doesn't say persecuted because you're a jerk. <laughs> Sometimes jerks get what they deserve. You know it. You can't complain about it. You'd be a jerk with people, and then oh, nobody likes me. That's not persecution. <laughs> Persecuted for righteousness, for his namesake. Yeah. Like, yeah, in the Beatitudes, like, to me, it's really cool that the, the one that comes after your appetite for righteousness, blessed are those hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied, is blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Mm -hmm. And that's external and internal. Yeah. You know, I need to be merciful toward me because yeah. I'm not righteous. Now that you kind of get this thing framed in just a bit, uh, let me read to you again Romans 15, 7. Therefore, proslambano, take by the hand and draw close to your heart. Accept one another just as Christ took you by the hand and drew you close. Accept one another to the glory of God. Christ followers in relationships. Anyone else? Well, we just said something that sparked a thought in me. I know you're shocked. You know, the whole thing. <laughs> you know, we're told to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're, it's so much of 
how we relate to other people um, as Christ followers is centered on how we look at ourselves. We can't love that verse. That that verse right there just says to me, Edie, if you don't love yourself in a healthy, Christ-like way, forget loving other people because you're going to respond to other people the way you respond to yourself. So when we have a hard time forgiving ourselves, keep going because we have been forgiven by Christ. We're not. We have a hard time forgiving other people. And part of that, I think, as human beings goes to, if I can look at you and find something in you that looks worse, that shouldn't be forgiven, then I feel better about me and what I've done. And so mm-hmm. really, it really all comes back to what I believe about what Christ has really done for me and how I respond to that. It's really a matter of belief of what he says that he has done for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when we don't believe that and we struggle with that inwardly, then it's going to be passed on and projected. What we feel about ourselves is projected onto the people around us. You nailed it. (laughs) You really did. Yep. I lived it. Yeah, absolutely. And then if you believe you're so dysfunctional that you're not worthy of being forgiven, oh, I could never receive mercy. Well, we're really getting into a twisted mental state and uh, pass that on to our kids, pass it on to neighbors, churches. It it is a mess. It is a mess. Absolutely. Now accept, proslambano, accept the one who is weak in faith but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. For one person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has proslambanoed him. God accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So. Okay. <clears throat> I receive from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until it comes. Please take a moment and uh, visualize yourself going up to one of the Lord's Supper tables as though you are the man before the king on your knees saying, please forgive me 15 years worth of salary. Please forgive me the big absurd debt. And I want you to hear the voice of the king saying, forgive.
And then when you walk away from that table, <laughs> you've got to make a choice about people who have hurt you. Reciprocity begins right there. Right there. Father, thank you for the way that you extend radical, absurd mercy to all of us. I pray that this, this day as we approach your table that we stop and really take inventory of what's going on. Pray that we'd all see ourselves kneeling before the King with a debt that there is no way we could ever pay it back. When we put that bread in our mouth and sip from that cup, we are drinking from the mug of mercy, eating from the loaf of bread that represents forgiveness. Teach us. In Jesus' name, amen.